told me that he had a crush on me since the very first day we met, I eventually gave in and started dating him. Well, he became very possessive over me. It seemed like he wanted me all to himself. He would get very jealous. And any time that I would get invited to hang out with friends from school or, you know, something like that, it usually would end up in a huge fight. He would make it like, well, he was just doing this to protect me, and he didn't want to see me get hurt. It was all about the isolation. He wanted me all to himself. He made it seem like he was hurt, definitely, like he was the victim. I never looked at it as this person could be the one stalking me. I would start second-guessing myself. He unexpectedly showed up at my house. He then stood in front of me and asked me, can I strangle you? I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. It is my honor to speak with Karen Wittes. Karen is the survivor of a vicious and violent attack when she was a teen, an attack that nearly cost her her life. We will talk with her about all of this. It has become Karen's mission to give a voice to the survivors of violent crime by speaking out publicly about her experiences. We also want to talk about Karen's law, which was signed into law by Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. For the purposes of this episode of When Dating Hurts, We will use the paradigm of males and females in dating relationships. It needs to be said that dating abuse and violence happens equally in every possible kind of relationship. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the When Dating Hurts podcast. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I'm so glad we had this opportunity. So if you can take us back to the summer of 1994, maybe even before that, but Before your attack, what were you doing back then? Kind of give us a little snapshot of your interest in school, maybe your hobbies. I had a boyfriend a little over a year before that in the summer of 1994. We had been already broken up by that point. I was just your normal, you know, typical carefree teenager. I was very into music and art and movies and things like that. That sounds like what I was up to when I was about that age. So you had this boyfriend back then. Before things went where they went, which is they went horribly wrong, how would you describe your relationship with him? Well, I met him through a group of friends, and I personally never saw him in any other way than, you know, other than just a friend. But he eventually made his feelings known to me. He told me that he had a crush on me since the very first day we met, and I was pretty shocked by that because I had no idea. We, We were just friends. And eventually, he asked me out, and I was very leery at first because I didn't see him in that way. But he was very persistent, and he used to actually speak to a few girlfriends of mine when I wasn't around and ask them to speak to me on his behalf, you know, trying to see if I would give him a chance or what have you. And I thought that maybe my friends saw something within him that I didn't. So with a little bit of peer pressure and his persistence, I eventually gave in and started dating him. Do you think if your friends didn't express some interest in him or see some value in him, do you think you would have looked towards? Yes, absolutely. It was definitely um, my my friends who were, you know, saying this stuff to me that, that made me make the decision to actually give him a chance. Yeah. Could you describe, can you think back and describe what you think maybe attracted you to him back then? Um, well, like I said, not, it, it wasn't so much of an attraction. Like I said, I, I didn't see him in that way, but it was just more or less, you know, maybe my friend saw something in him that I didn't, so. But eventually you must have seen something in him or you wouldn't date him for over a year. Yeah, right? well, yeah, eventually. But he was he was very, um, you know, he, he was very attentive to me. Um, he would tell me things like, you know, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. I love you always, you know, just very you know, much like that, always constantly telling me he loved me and uh, he always put me above everyone else. So now the dating period was how long before you maybe broke up with him? A little over a year. It was over a year. And during that time, would you say you saw what you would later come to understand as 
as warning signs of an unhealthy relationship or anything like that? Did you see things or? Yes. Well, he became very possessive over me. It seemed like he wanted me all to himself. He would get very jealous. And anytime that I would get invited to hang out with friends from school or, you know, something like that, it usually would end up in a huge fight. The arguments escalated over time. And that's eventually what resulted in our breakup. I realized that I needed to be a teenager. I needed to have friends of my own. And, you know, I realized that it was the best if we just went our separate ways. So he was jealous of not just guys being around you, but even other yes, girls. Yes. He, he even went as far as to tell me that a few of my girlfriends actually made him sick. I do remember that. Like physically sick? Yeah. Like he, he just didn't like them. And, you know, this one makes me sick. And, you know, he would just say nasty things like that. And um, he, he would say things like, this one's talking badly about you and that one, you know, and I didn't believe him at first, but he was very persistent with it. And he was, he would make it like, well, he was just doing this to protect me and he didn't want to see me get hurt. Things like that. He was doing it as a public service. Exactly. That's the way he made it seem. Yeah. So did you, did he also try to turn you maybe on your own family members, maybe? Yeah, I know that quite a few times he, he would say something about my mom or something like that. Yeah. So he was pretty thorough. He really wanted to isolate you. It was all about him. Yes, it was. It was It was all about the isolation, very possessive over me. He, and like he wanted me all to himself. Yes. Now, besides that, which is bad enough, did he use abusive language or did he did he do other find other techniques to force you to try to do what he wanted to control you? Um no, actually this the possessiveness is is the main thing. He was never physically violent with me at this time. Um like I said, he 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 would use things to manipulate me by elevating me, by saying, you know, how beautiful I am and constantly with the I love you, nobody could love you the way I do. Things like that. So on the other side of the of the other side of the coin, did your friends have an opinion about him? Did they kind of whisper in your ear and say, you know, this is how we feel? Actually, no. The friendships kind of just ended. Um, oh, because they I was, just yeah, they just stopped talking, so you didn't hear anything. Exactly, because I was spending all of my time with him. Did anybody ever reach out to you and say, you know, Karen, we're kind of worried about you with this guy? My my mom said that I was spending far too much time with him. My grandparents also. And I remember at one point, even a school counselor uh, took us both aside and um, in high school. And he met with both of us separately and just as, expressed that we were spending too much time together. And deep down inside, I, I agreed. I, I knew, you know, that we were. And I was entirely too young to be in a relationship like this. And yeah, so with all of that and my own feelings, plus, you know, like I said, that I knew I needed to be a teenager again. I needed to have friends of my own. This was the buildup. And this was what eventually ended our relationship. So you broke the news to him that you wanted to break up. And how did he handle it at that time? He played it off pretty well. He was he was okay with it, it seemed. And then he came back and he asked me to go back with him. And I um, I told him no. I said that this was what was the best for the both of us. And he asked me if we could remain friends. And I agreed to that because I didn't want to have any kind of resentment between us or any kind of anger. So um, I agreed to, you know, just remain friends with him. And we would just go on our separate ways. So that seemed to be okay for a while. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, how long were you broken up before you came back together or did you come back together? Oh, no, we never went back together again. No, we, like I said, we just remained, we mean, we, you know, we remained on a friendly kind of basis. You know, every so often he would call and, you know, see how I was doing or things like that. No, we never got back together again after our breakup. He did not live close by you, right? Um, it was about a 45 minute walk from his house to mine. But you went to the same school, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, okay. our school okay. kind of was in the middle of where I lived and where he lived. So you had been broken up and he makes phone calls to you and he does his best to keep in touch. Yeah. Okay, so I guess then I have to ask you then what happened after the phone calls were not enough for him? Well, throughout that year, I started receiving a series of hang-up calls. 
Um, this was before the time that everyone had a cell phone and, you know, you, you have caller ID. So there was no way of knowing who was actually making these calls. So my mother and I thought that it may have been a telemarketer or one of those robocall things or, you know, even just a kid playing around. But eventually these hang up calls had gotten so out of control that they were coming in at all different times. And it started to feel like they were intentional. And we thought, but who could this be? And better yet, why? And there was no reason for me to think that it was him, that it was my ex-boyfriend, because it just didn't make sense. Why would somebody be doing this? And plus, not only that, we agreed to remain friends, and I was still talking to him every so often. But once these calls started to begin to feel intentional, I started getting like this gut instinct that maybe it could be him, but there was no way to prove it. I wasn't sure, but I even confronted him about these phone calls. And anytime that I would ask him about it, he would simply, you know, just play it off and kind of twist things around and make it like I was wrong for even accusing him of doing something like that. Like he made it seem like he was hurt or he was offended that I would even think something like that of him. So he was a victim. Yes, definitely. Yes. Like he was the victim. So I started to second guess myself and I started feeling guilty for even, you know, thinking something like that of him. Yeah. It's exactly what he wanted you to think. Yeah. And, and that's, that's exactly, that's exactly the way I felt. And, you know, also if I could just add in growing up as a kid in the eighties and in the nineties, we always heard of don't talk to strangers and stranger danger. Everything was around strangers. I never realized that somebody could be stalked by somebody who they actually knew, or, you know, the people who commit these horrific crimes could, they could ever be somebody that the, the victim actually knew. It was always geared around stranger danger. So I, I never looked at it as like, you know, this person could be the one stalking me. But like I said, I did have a nagging gut instinct that it possibly could be him making these hang up calls, but I just wasn't sure. Do you think the hang up calls were just to establish you were home? Is that it? Is that the whole purpose? I have no idea. I have no idea what these hang-up calls were about. I think back to probably around that time, but didn't they have Star 69 where you could actually... Yes. Yes, they had Star 69. And what we what we used to do was we would do the Star 69. And anytime we would try to trace the call, the automated recording would come over and say that the call couldn't be traced. So that meant that the caller was either calling from out of the service area or it was coming okay. from a payphone. Okay. A lot I didn't of think times about payphone. That was sure. Of course. Case. So that was the case. A lot of times when you would call from a payphone, it would say that it was out of the service area. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So at mm-hmm. some point, he gets out of the phone calls and he gets out of the, the hang-up calls. And your parents actually changed the phone number at some point. Is that right? Um, yes. Uh, well, I lived with my mother. My mother was a single mother. And yes, she, she had our phone number changed because the phone calls had gotten out of control. So when you reach the point with the hang-up calls and maybe even with his calls <clears throat> that you didn't want any of that anymore, then the number where you lived was changed, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now this guy's having a difficult time contacting you. What does he do then? Um, well, he came up with a story and he uh, came to my house and he told me that he was moving to California. And as soon as he said that, I, I, I didn't believe him. It was just too far-fetched for where he was in life. I don't even think he had a job at the time. And he said he was moving to California though. And now at this time you're living in the Philadelphia area. Would yes, that be fair? we were living okay, in Philadelphia. Okay, so that, that's yeah. a pretty extreme move, obviously. Okay. Yes, absolutely. So he said that he was moving to California, and at the time that I dated him, I, I was very, I, I loved the whole California scene. I was very into Marilyn Monroe and things like that. So it's, it's just kind of odd that he picked California of all places. And do you think that was in part hoping you might say, "Wow, California." Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, I think yep. I think that was intentional. Yes, I, okay. I definitely right. do. And okay. so I told him. I said I even told him that I didn't believe him that he was going, but he was very persistent in that and saying, "Oh yes, I'm I'm going," and that was it. So he he left and he supposedly moved to California. But he didn't. No. Okay, so he doesn't go, and he goes back to his 45 minute walk away from your house, mm-hmm. then how, then how much time passes and what happens next? 
Well, a few months passed after that, and I received another letter from him saying that he was back from California, just visiting, and it went into great detail telling me about when he was there. He met a girl named Karen, the same exact name as me. He actually gave a description of this girl. She supposedly was the same height, the same weight as me. He said that he proposed to her on a beach in California and she cried. And he just went into great detail about everything. He said that he met her in a market. She was the cashier. He, he, it was just so detailed. And then at the end, he, he said that he was going to be a daddy because she was pregnant and Mm. that's how he pretty much ended the letter and he just basically said you know he he would like to come visit and keep in touch well i i found out from a mutual friend that he never went to california that he was here the entire time and i actually saw him the one time when I was on a bus and there he was. So I knew he didn't go to California. So to receive this letter from him stating that he was in California was after I already had my doubts that he was never going in the first place. Right. So does he write you another letter? Does he, does he swing by your place and say, hi, what does he do? he, He confessed after that. He, he confessed that he never went to California And he told me that the only reason why he told me all of this was to try to help him get over me. And he said that a year and a half after our breakup, he said that he was still in love with me. And I was completely shocked. I had no idea whatsoever that he still had feelings for me. It was a complete shock. And But he he apologized for it. He he wanted to try to move on from, from that. He wanted to move on with his life at this point. Yes. So mm-hmm. supposedly, right? Supposedly, yes. Okay. So the next time you have any contact with him, then what happens? So he he came by and he apologized for the letter saying that he didn't mean it that it it was a lie and he was just using that lie to try to to get over me because he still was in love with me after all this time. So basically, he comes by and he says something to the effect of I was trying to help myself get over you, and I then created this other person, and I sent this to you. In effect, this was a bad idea. I blew it, right? Yes, exactly. Yep. So I apologize for this failed attempt at making myself feel better about losing you. Would that be yes. fair? That's definitely fair, yes. So he comes by, he apologizes, and he maybe feels like he's kind of erased the, erased the blackboard a little bit. You know, can we do a reset? He kind of goes away. Time passes, and I guess then what? He wants to maybe see if he can restart this relationship, I would think. Um, Well, it wasn't so much that he was trying to restart the relationship, but he just wanted to remain friends. That was the way that he always put it to me. So let's make it platonic, and, Mm -hmm. and I know you, and you know me, and we can talk, and there's really nothing... No strings attached. Right. And and he, he knew that I was not interested at all. So yeah, he wanted to just try to be a part of my life again. And how did that sound to you? Well, I was, since I trusted him and since I knew him, he had a way of, you know, like I said, kind of making me feel like I was the one, you know, even though I had like this gut instinct telling me, you know, something was a little off here, he had a way of twisting it around and, you know, just saying, oh, you're overreacting and things like that. And I would start second guessing myself and I would kind of give in and give him a second chance, even if it was just to be his friend. Yeah, that's, that's some practice manipulation at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what can you tell us then about when he finally has He's had his phone calls. He's had his hang-up phone calls. He's written to you about a complete fabricated part of his life. So the next time he actually really touches your life in a really big way, what does he do then? Well, it was the morning of June 23rd, 1994, when I was 16 years old. He unexpectedly showed up at my house 
and my mother was in work and I asked him to leave quite a few times, but he kind of kept stalling and stalling. And eventually he then stood in front of me and asked me as casually as and calmly as I'm speaking to you right now, can I strangle you? And oh. before I even realized what was happening, he wrapped both of his hands around my neck and began to strangle me. I lost consciousness and I regained consciousness. And when I regained consciousness, he asked me if I believed in God so that we could be in heaven together forever. And then he strangled me a second time. And that time while unconscious, he raped me. And I regained consciousness halfway through the rape and he began punching me with a closed fist until I blacked out. I regained consciousness for, I guess it was maybe the third time because I was in and out of consciousness the whole time. And I found myself laying in um, the back bedroom and he was kneeling on the floor beside me and he began stabbing me multiple times in the chest. He then kissed me on the lips and he told me that he loved me and he wrapped me in bed sheets and shoved me underneath a, a bed and left me there to die. He kept saying, die, Karen, let yourself go, let yourself die. And he, I remember he, he was running in and out of the room trying to clean up. Um, it seemed like he was just trying to clean up what he had done. And at one point when he was out of the room, I managed to squeeze myself out from underneath of the bed and I called 911 and he must have heard me. So he ran back into the room and hung the phone up on me before I had a chance to really say anything. And he, he grabbed me and threw me back into the back bedroom and knocked me off of my feet by my face and shoved me underneath of the bed again. And as I laid there, I knew that I needed to, to, to get out because I couldn't stay there much longer. I felt myself dying. I made my way across the living room floor uh, to the front door and there was a chain lock across the front door. So that meant that he had either left through the back door or he was still in the house. Mm. So I quickly unlocked the door and um, I put my hand over the stab wounds that were on my chest. And I staggered eight houses up the street to my grandparents' oh, house um, where I collapsed in my grandfather's arms. And my grandfather was a World War II veteran and he did what he could to try to keep me alive until the police and paramedics arrived. And once they got there, I was rushed to the hospital by a police escort because they realized that if there was a slight delay in getting me there, that this would have resulted in a homicide. My blood pressure was 80 over nothing. Thing. I had a collapsed lung and stab wounds that were so close to my heart that I needed to be transferred to another hospital for emergency exploratory surgery. Unbelievable. How, how much, you know, once you get out of the house, are you conscious from that point on? I, I was conscious enough to, to get me to, to the house. I, I was just staggering and I just kept reminding myself, you know, you're not going to let him win. You're not going to let him win. You, you know, you're going to get there. And the thing that kept me really going was even if I didn't survive this, I needed to tell someone who did this. I wanted to make sure that they knew who did this to me. Mm. So I just kept pushing myself to, to get there. And they said that once I arrived to my grandparents' house, that I was in and out of consciousness the entire time. So at this point, this guy has fleed somewhere, right? He's mm -hmm. gone. Where does yes. he go? What does he do? Well, he made his way to the Taconi Palmara Bridge, where he was going to end his life. And when they arrested him and took him into custody, he was holding a picture of me in his hand. And um, I was later told that he kept asking, is she dead? Did I kill her? Did she die? Things like that. But yeah, it was it was a pretty crazy scene, I was told, on the Taconi Palmara Bridge. I was told that he, he jumped off the one platform and into traffic, and the police officer who, who took him into custody grabbed him right as he was about to jump over. He had one leg and one arm over, and the police officer grabbed him back and took him into custody. How did they know to go to the bridge? Well, actually, through my story, I he told me that he was going to um, jump off of the Taconi Palmaro Bridge to take his life. And that's what I told the police officers when I got to my grandparents' house. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, that's really, that is truly like a scene in a movie where they just get him at the last possible second. Yeah. Before Now, if he had jumped off that bridge, I don't know that bridge, but if you had jumped off, would that have been it? I mean, is that a yes. big distance and he probably would have died yes, somehow, it, drowned, whatever? 
Yes, it's over uh, the Delaware River. Thinking about that, do you, I don't know, do you you sort of wish that he maybe had completed his uh, leap? Yeah. Okay. I would too. Why do you think he took it to this place? Why did he finally make that decision to show up at your house and do what he did? Ah, that is the question I have been struggling with ever since I was 16 years old, since the day that this happened. I could never understand what would, you know, make somebody do something so vicious and so vile, especially to someone who they supposedly loved. I don't know, perhaps it's out of uh, total desperation due to the fact that he lost all control over me. I, I don't know. I could never understand, you know, the mind that's capable of doing such horrible things. I'll, I'll never understand. The guess would be if I can't have you, nobody can. Yeah, yeah. Seems that way. Seems like it does go there, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews. To be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a read. The information in this book has already saved lives. So you take a while to recover, right? I mean, this must take months. A very long time. Yes. Yeah, I had the chest tube because I was, uh, my lung was collapsed from being stabbed. So I had the chest tube for seven days for a week. I had to undergo extensive physical therapy to learn how to sit up, how to stand and how to walk again. It was, it was crazy. And I wasn't fully discharged from the hospital until November. This happened in June, but I had to go back to the hospital for different follow-up visits and they lasted until November. But yeah, it was, it was pretty bad. So this really puts a big twist into your high school career, right? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Were you able to return to school even that next year? No. So you missed all that year too? Yes. And that would have been what year for you in school? Is that junior, senior? What is junior year. Junior. junior year. Yeah. So what can you tell us? What were the sequence of events with this man having to answer for his crime? I mean, did he, I guess immediately they take him and they put him in a county jail or something like that for a while. And then eventually he's going to prison, I would imagine, for what he did, right? Yes. Yes. Well, right after being in the hospital, I found myself in court. First, it was the preliminary hearing. And after giving my testimony to the judge in full detail, my attacker actually looked at me from across the courtroom and mouthed the words, I love you to me. And I immediately told the judge and the judge kind of dismissed me off like, you know, and said, oh, just ignore him. And my attacker was never reprimanded once. And I remember the judge setting his bail extremely low. It was very low. And I remember the DA in my case actually arguing that his bail should be higher. But the judge said that it was fine the way that it was. So needless to say, my attacker was released on bail and we were never notified that he was oh, released. I mean, he's, he basically is released immediately. I mean, he's out yeah. fast. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the way that we found out that my attacker was back on the streets was due to the fact that he himself violated stay away orders by writing me a letter and telling me that he was out on bail. And we reported the letter right away. And then after that, he jumped bail and needed to be rearrested. So you could imagine how traumatizing all of this was for my family and myself right afterwards. So you say he jumped bail. What does jump bail look like? Um, I think I'm not exactly sure of what it is that they do. I think that he had to show up for an appearance or something like that, okay. and he never showed. Okay. And since he he didn't do that or whatever the actual, I, I'm not sure exactly 
what that end of it looks like, but I know that he jumped bail and then there needed to be a bail hearing. And at the bail hearing, I remember the judge literally screaming at him, telling him that it was over, that he was to have no more contact with me whatsoever. And my attacker just sat there and stared at the judge and refused to answer. And I remember the judge saying, do you understand me? And literally banging his fist on the desk saying to my attacker, do you understand me? And my attacker just refused to answer. And finally, his defense attorney answered for him and said, yes, he understands. And my attacker just sat there and looked on. So from the time that this happened to you in June of 94, when does he do any real length of time in, in jail or prison? Well, after the bail hearing, we were supposed to go to trial, but he did an open plea and he pled guilty to aggravated assault, rape, and a weapons offense. And he was then sentenced to 15 to 40 years in prison. Well, I'm not hearing attempted murder in what you just said. No, he wasn't charged with attempted murder. He was charged with aggravated assault. Aggravated assault. Yeah, we were told that at the time with the, the sentencing guidelines that aggravated assault had a, uh, um, you would serve more time with that at the time with the sentencing guidelines as opposed to attempted murder. That's what we were told. Okay, that's what you were told. How do you feel about that now? Do you feel like that's, that doesn't seem to make sense to me? No, it, it, it doesn't, but that's what, that's what the charges were against him. All right. Okay, so he jumps bail, and now where does he go? They they rearrested him back but in he's, prison. But is he in prison or is he like county jail? Um. Well, he 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 was in. I I guess it was prison, and he was waiting for the uh, the trial. Okay. So from the time that he attacked you in June of '94 to a real live trial that you can picture in your head, how much time is that? Um. We're talking a year, well, a year and a half. A half a year. It was a half a year. Okay. And then the sentencing was in February. It was actually on Valentine's Day. Oh, how fitting. Yeah, exactly. So at that point, he gets 15 to 40. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And then he gets five years for a weapons offense, five-year probation. That is, five-year probation. So it's 15 to 40 years in prison, five-year probation for the weapons offense. Okay. Well, probation, though, but you're out during that time. Exactly. So, exactly. You know, during that time. It doesn't yeah. really add up to anything. Right. 15 to 40. Karen, unlike most of us, you have a law named after you, Karen's Law. And Karen's Law affects parole eligibility for sexually violent offenders, potentially increasing the time between parole hearings from one year to three years. So you, you had this situation, this 15 to 40 years situation, and you know what it's like very well to annually have to start to get ready. I mean, you, typically, I believe you get the letter five or six months before the hearings come, and then you're having to kind of like steal yourself and look at last year's notes, whatever you said, maybe update some things. But still, you know, it's kind of a nerve-wracking hour that you get in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I imagine yeah. that's where you went, right? Yes, yes. Okay. Go into that building <sighs> and, and, uh, and sit in that small room across from some of the parole board people and and tell your harrowing story. I mean, it's just awful. And, you know, my heart goes out to you. It is it, it, unimaginable having to, to relive, and you have to relive it because they have to hear what happened to you and how it has affected you for the rest of your life. I mean, that's really what it is. But the first parole testimony, we weren't able to actually go and meet with the parole board back then in 2009. We could just hand in written statements. So um, a lot has changed in our, our system since then. So thankfully, we are actually able to go now and meet with the parole board members because back then, like I said, it was just a matter of statements and you kind of had to send it in and cross your fingers and hope for the best. Hope they read it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, in those days, could you also, could it, could it have been a videotape or, or a audio tape or was it just no, strictly words was, on paper? It was strictly words on paper back in 2009. Yes. Okay. Strictly words on paper. But you're absolutely right. It has changed since that time. Thank God. That was yes. such an important thing to yes. be able to show up. Mm -hmm. So you were dealing with this annual trauma, having to relive every last part of this to sit there and write it a little stronger every year, whatever you had to do, and hoping that sending that in, they would read it and that they would 
come to the right choice and mm-hmm. keep this keep this guy behind bars. Right. So at some point, was it was it your idea to to change this annual setup to something that was longer than that? Well, let me just give you a little bit of a background on how this all got started. So my attacker would come up for parole and the board would see him as a high risk or a danger to myself and even society as a whole. And, you know, they would not only deny him parole, but they would also order him to serve his maximum sentence, meaning that they never wanted to review him again. However, Pennsylvania inmates were able to reapply for parole every single year, regardless of what the parole board ordered. So this became very confusing, as you can imagine. You know, the parole board would say one thing, but yet he could do another. It It seemed like it was like a systematic cycle of abuse. It seemed like this was the way for inmates in certain situations to torment and harass their victims, but legally from behind bars, because essentially the inmates were the ones calling the shots. It was, you know- Yeah, I mean, who's in control here? Because I'm so used to the parole board having the final say. Mm -hmm. I guess unless a governor steps in, that's about the only higher court, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And it was was like the inmates had the authority over the parole board's decision. So So you actually had parole boards that said- Forget about this stuff. Yeah. This guy ought to do the 40 for what he put you through. Exactly. Practically yeah. killing you, you know. Exactly. Yeah. And they, and like I said, they saw him as, since I guess maybe because it was a stalking case, they saw him as a danger to myself and they saw him as, you know, a threat to society. And, you know, who knows what he's been doing while incarcerated, you know, why the parole board would come to, to the decision to make him serve his maximum sentence. But like I said, they would order him to serve his maximum sentence. And I, this overwhelming like release, this weight would be lifted from my family and and my shoulders. And we, we would just feel like so grateful that yes, he was denied, but at the same time, we don't ever have to go back and testify against him again. It's over, you know, but then just shortly after that, he applied for parole on his own, forcing me to have to go back and relive this nightmare over and over and over again. So that's ultimately how I decided to meet with my Senator. So you have a parole board that's saying, look, let's stop this. Let's just make it the full 40. Look what this man has done. He is a danger. And on the other hand, you have this guy in prison who, whenever he wants to be seen by the parole board, they have to do it. Exactly. Exactly. And so when he when he plays his card, they have to come along. And then that kind of makes you feel it's your responsibility to also have to go through this one way or another. You know, yeah. you have to sit and write something or, you know, you, you know, you have to participate because you know what this man is absolutely capable of. I mean, you're still you're still literally and and uh, emotionally scarred by what this guy did. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So then was it your idea then to kind of change the rules here? Well, my husband actually mentioned it. He said that it seemed like there was kind of like a loophole or a contradiction in our system because, you know, the parole board's final decision, it seemed like the inmates had authority over that. So my mother actually suggested to meet with our local state senator, and that's John Sabatina. And so we did. And I told him my story and everything that we were going through. And what year would that be, Karen? When did you actually sit down with him and meet? That was 2017. Okay, not long ago. Okay. Yeah, that was that was yeah, it was I was going through the whole parole thing again and just it was it was too much and I knew something needed to be done because it wasn't only you know, me that was going through this, this was happening to thousands of survivors. They would be told that the parole board didn't want to review the inmate in their cases and just for the inmates to just be able to apply for parole on their own, regardless of what the parole board ordered. And this was happening to thousands of survivors across the Commonwealth. And it was just so unjust. So I met with my Senator and he agreed that something needed to be done. So in January of 2018, he introduced legislation in inspired by my story called Karen's Law. From there, I was invited to speak and share my story at rallies at the Capitol to speak on behalf of the bill in hopes that we could actually remedy some of the re-victimization that survivors like myself in these situations were, were actually facing. And I mean, for me, just to know that my story has inspired such change in our law that's helping other survivors and, and just being able to turn something so horrific into something so positive that could help others that it just means everything to me. That's just an amazing thing because I can see where 
where a lot of people wouldn't even think to do this. And if they thought to do it, they wouldn't be successful at it anyway. So you, you had the great idea. You got the right, sounds like you got the right guy to help run the ball with you. And, and so you're trying to push this in 2018. When does it finally become law? Is that later that year? Um, uh, no, it took a while. It was it was three years of just, you know, constantly pushing for this and, you know, speaking on behalf of myself and other crime victims to to educate people and to let them know exactly what the parole system is like for the crime victims. And it just took a lot of that, you know, a lot of, um, you know, uh, pushing for it. And then finally, and on November 25th, it was the day before Thanksgiving of 2020, mm. It was signed into law by Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. Amazing. I mean, that's a that's a champagne moment, right? That's pretty. Oh my gosh! It felt like I won the lottery. <laughs> I was so I was so happy, but not only just you know happy for myself. I was happy for the thousands of survivors that you know this bill or this law now that this law is going to be helping, and not to mention the thousands more in the future. Yeah, it's absolutely fabulous, and and. Um... You know, I mean, oh, yeah. I've thanked you before. You and I have spoken before this, but I've thanked you before. And let me just thank yeah. you right here again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you're you're going to make oh, me cry. Oh. Um, me it's, too. It's beyond my pleasure. And, um, you know, I realize that um, I'm... I, I'm incredibly fortunate to be here. And, um, if you know, I can help other survivors in any way that I can. Um, it means literally the world to me. So thank you, Bill. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you. So you have been honored with the Medal of Courage presented by the Congressional Medal of Honor Society, Military Order of the Purple Heart. And in 2019, you were honored with the Judge Toby Lynn Dickman Award presented by Women's Center of Montgomery County. I love those people there, by the way. Me too. They're the best. I love them. (laughs) You know, here you're out there doing doing your thing, doing what you know you have to do, and then now you have to build a trophy case or something. You have to. <laughs> Jeez, that's great. <laughs> well, not quite, you. but you. um, thank you. Um, yeah, it was about a year after my attack. I was contacted by an organization who learned of my story when I was I was 17 years old at this mm-hmm. time, and they were having a ceremony that awarded child survivors the Medal of Courage. So I was just so humbled by the experience. I remember it was held at the Mann Music Center. And I remember the man who presented the medal to me. He was the late Joseph Rodriguez of San Antonio, Texas. And he was a medal, a Congressional Medal of Honor mm-hmm. recipient for his service in the Vietnam War. As far as the Judge Toby Lynn Dickman Award goes, that was presented to me in 2019 by the Women's Center of Montgomery County. That was for my work with Karen's Law and my advocacy work for crime victims' rights. That's just great. I mean, really, so... Thank you. You know, so so many people, when they have tragedies strike their lives, they they do what probably most people would do, and that is they concentrate on themselves, and they and I and I don't blame them at all. I mean, I yeah, oh no, no. Well, I had to do that myself. I I mean, you know, uh, the my efforts with Karen's Law didn't come until 23 years after my attack, and that was when I had enough of the way the parole board would say one thing and he could do another. You know, that's what prompted me to do this again. I spoke out. Uh, shortly after my attack, you know, like I had mentioned, I'm um, trying to um, educate people on the dangers and the warning signs and, you know, the dangers of stalking and things like that. But I did have to take quite a few years in between to to focus on myself. So that that's very crucial. It's, it's very important for survivors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, I, I just have such respect for what you've done because it's one thing to think about. It's another thing to do it. And besides do it, with Karen's law, you have to keep coming back at it every year, every session, until you could finally score. You know, get this into law and and, uh, and, and make it real. <laughs> and that was, yeah, it, that was an emotional roller coaster and a half because not only do you have to try to get all of the other state legislators on board with it, but you have to wait for them to bring it up for a vote. And then when they finally do, you have to make sure that they will vote yes on it. And it's not just as simple as passing one chamber; you have to pass 
so many different committees and from appropriations, you have to go here and there, and then you have to go through the whole, the full Senate and then the full house and then a uh, judiciary. And there's just so many different components to this. It's not just one thing pass and it's done. It's so many different things that a bill needs to pass to, to become law. And it's just, like I said, an emotional roller coaster. And if Karen's law didn't pass in the 2019, 2020 session, it would have died. And all of the progress we made, we literally had only one more step to complete before the end of the 2020 session. And it was November, so we were ending the session right then. And if it didn't pass, like I said, Karen's law would have died and we would have had to start all over from scratch. So that would have been horrible. But but thankfully, I think it was the morning of November 18th, the chairman contacted me directly and he told me that my bill was the only bill that he was taking to the floor for a vote that day to close out the session. And thankfully he did and it passed. And then after that, the governor had 10 days to either sign it or to veto it. So finally we got to the main thing. It passed everything. We're there after three years and now it was up to the governor. So if he were to veto it, it would have just been horrible to see everything we worked for just get vetoed. But that's when on November 25th of 2020, the sponsoring senator, John Sabatina, he he contacted me and he told me that the governor signed it into law and the rest is history. Yeah, that's great. And you know, it's tricky because it has a way of keeping keeping these guys, men and women who were in prison, keeping their, them there longer mm-hmm. at a time when you have a lot of people trying to dial down prison overcrowding and it's expensive to to house these yeah. people, you know, and, and all of that. So they're trying yeah. to get them out and here you have a law that's trying to keep them in. So that's, that was an uphill climb for you. Yeah, it, it was hard, but it also, you know, it's very modest because it, it doesn't take the rights of the offenders, like it doesn't take the rights away of the offenders. I mean, they could still apply, but it just extends the application time period from every one year to every three years. So it doesn't take the, the rights away from them. And it is for only a certain type of offender. It's not for, you know, somebody who's in there for drugs or something else. It's just for tier three sexually violent predators. It's just whoever falls in the category who falls under Karen's law. But at at the same time, it's like, I I don't know, it it was presented to me like it could free up parole board, the parole board's time to actually meet with people who were nonviolent offenders to see those people who are ready to Mm re-enter society. Because in my case, my attacker, the parole board saw him as such a high risk and they didn't want to review him ever again. So, you know, just to see him not be able to you know, uh, these other people are kind of on the fence. They could come out, maybe not, maybe yes, maybe no. This guy is so such an obvious decision that it's like you know, it's a it, kind of a no brainer that that mm-hmm. this guy, if he comes out, it's going to really, it's going to ruin more lives, no doubt about it. Exactly, and so it's it's for these types of offenders. It's not for you know a drug offense or something like that. It's it's for the uh, high risk offenders. That's for sure. Right. Right. Sure. For people who are listening who are either in an abusive relationship or know someone who is, maybe it's a friend or family member, what should that person do right this minute, do you think? Because you've had a long time to think about others besides yourself who mm-hmm. who are who are currently dealing with this. Well, I would it, it's simple. Tell someone. Tell someone, get help. The more people who are aware of what's going on, the better. That's the biggest thing. I think you need to, you need to talk to someone who, who you can trust. Tell someone and get, get help. And when you say get help, what do you have in mind? For whatever, you know, whoever situation it pertains to. For instance, fortunately, this day and age, there are great confidential resources, you know, that are just like a mouse click away. You could just simply Google domestic violence centers in your area and, you know, they can help you come up with a safety plan to help you get out of the situation and get you to a safe place. Great answer. That's That would be my answer. I just wanted to hear you say it. That's great. 
And you know what? To also mention, I noticed that on the domestic violence hotline, I think it was on their page, they also have a section for if you have pets and you're afraid of leaving your pets behind, they can actually help keep your pets with you throughout your transition. Uh So I thought that that was kind of a cool little, you know, thing. So, because I know a lot of people are worried about leaving their pets behind. So they even have like options for that. But I can't stress how important it is to develop a safety plan because it could actually save your life or the life of someone you you love. So safety plans, I I think are key. Someone who is this manipulative and abusive is the most dangerous time. So absolutely. You can't just say, okay, I'm done with this person. This, you know, this afternoon I make the decision and later today I'll break away and then it'll be everything ought to be all right. Cause now I'm have nothing to do with this person. Then you find out in the worst possible way that doesn't really work like that. That somebody who is, who is that overbearing, who is that into that much into power and control is not mm-hmm. going to let you get off that easy. And you have to go to professionals who study this and some of them have actually been through it themselves who are yeah. work at domestic violence agencies. Yeah. And, and it's right after you decide to leave, that's when you're the most vulnerable. That's when it happens. We focus so much on the women who are in the abusive situations, but it's like, I applaud these women. I mean, we all, including myself, the, our attacks or murders actually happen after we already left the situation. And I think there needs to be more focus on the fact that these happen either right when the woman decides to, to leave or after the woman has already left. So yeah, I think that's very important to, to mention. And a safety plan is, is definitely key. That, that could save your life. So Karen, are there any questions you think I may have missed in the conversation? Other things you wanted to add? You know, something that maybe our listeners need to know that could save them or maybe save the life of someone they care about? Um, well, when we were just talking about safety plans, I was just thinking about how my mother always used to tell me when I was a kid that if I was in any kind of danger while she was in work, you know, to go to my grandparents' house. And it was a plan that was that simple, something so simple that she, you know, I don't know, that she she had instilled in me when I was a kid. Um, It was something that simple that helped save my life. So I would just go back to the safety plan. Yeah, that definitely saved you, didn't it? Yeah, it definitely, definitely did. And it was something so simple. Just get to your grandparents' house if if there's anything going on. You know, my mother could have never imagined anything like this at all. But, you know, she just said, you know, for any reason, just go to your grandparents' house. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah, thank God they were just down the street. Yeah. Eight houses away? Is that right? Eight, eight, eight houses away. Yeah. We're, we were from Philadelphia and we lived in the row homes. So yeah, it was eight houses down. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Thank God for grandma and grandpa. Right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Karen, thank you for sharing your story with us. It is an absolutely shocking story, but what you've done since your attack is so heroic and so selfless. And it's just, it's, I really mean it's an honor to know you. It really is. And I can't put in the words the courage you have and you continue to demonstrate. I met you just a couple of months ago through the, uh, the Office of Victim Advocate in, uh, in Pennsylvania. And I never imagined I'd actually have the opportunity to speak with the Karen of the Karen's Law. So here you are. And well, thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. And, and words, you know, I, d- I just don't have enough words to express how grateful I am for people like yourself. I mean, you know, the, the work that you're doing is incredible and we're, we're in this together. And yes, I think there's just a common bond that survivors have that people who are non-survivors really, really don't understand. I'm eternally grateful for you, Bill. And thank you so much for your work as well. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. That is absolutely wonderful. And I will definitely take that with me and share it with my wife and son. Oh, and all my best to them as well. And to you and your family too. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, We believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts 
then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.